It's 2019. No, it isn't. Almost 2019. <laughs> Have you started your presidential campaign yet? If you uh, haven't, you're behind. Um, I was really fearful that we would already be knee deep in people that were, you know, arguing over the next president, but we've mostly avoided that. So that's something I'm incredibly thankful for in this moment. Something else to be thankful is the prediction show from the Community Broadband Bits podcast. And here it is. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I actually think it's the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Right you are, Chris. And this year we have two new voices. Yes, we're very excited to be uh, welcoming into the studio the new voice of Jess, Jess Del Fiaco. Welcome to the show. Happy to finally be on. And we also have Katie Keenbaum. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We're missing Nick and Hannah, although we may have a special little presentation from them, um, just uh, in recognition for their many years of service and how much we miss them. Um, but we're going we're gonna to talk about what happened in the last year, what we thought was going to happen, and some of what we think will be happening next year. If you haven't heard one of our predictions show before, it's a prediction show. However, it's also a review show because we always like to review the predictions we made for the prior year. I predict some of our predictions will have been wrong. I predict you're correct. The one that I wanted to start off with was that I made the bold prediction, no good will come of the FCC. And I was wrong. Mm, mm. Which I did not expect to be wrong. But I think that the CAF 2 reverse auction had a lot of good coming from it. It set some really important, really good precedents. So let's start with a moment of praise for something the FCC got right before we really start to trash them. Yay! <laughs> Um, and in particular, if people are interested in that, the show that we did with John Chambers uh, from Connexon um, that discusses the CAF2 auction, I think we did it in September, October. Um, I think that was a, was one of our best shows of the year. The FCC, um, you know, that was sort of like a, it was kind of a, a joke that, that we did about no good will come of it. I mean, obviously, there's other things that are important that have been done. There's a number of things that I find frustrating, but we're not going to dwell on those things. Let's jump into the barriers discussion where Lisa was wrong. I was so wrong. So wrong, despite having snuck through the previous year with the correct guess. That's right. And Chris predicted there would be fewer than five bills introduced at the state level that would be harmful to municipal broadband efforts. And he was correct. And that's it's worth noting because there was a number of people that we respect who I think we're right to sound the alarm that we could face many more bills, given the, the many state legislatures that flipped to being much more conservative. And historically, it has been conservative legislators that have tried to preempt cities from building networks. I think it's also important to point out, Chris, that you are also correct in that. I agree. I don't even know what you're going to say, <laughs> but you're so right. In that you thought that there would be bills introduced to help local communities. And there was a bill introduced in California. We won. Yes, um, that allows the community service districts to build municipal broadband networks. And in the past, they were allowed to do that. But if somebody else wanted to offer services over that infrastructure, they were obligated to sell that infrastructure. Right. And our understanding is that there are at least a few that are looking into their options and, and could move forward. This is it's very exciting. Many thanks to Assembly Member Ed Chow, who pushed that bill, who was a champion for it, made it happen. Um, there was no opposition from the, the, the usual forces that we were afraid might. Um, I think we may see less of a, of a push um, continuing into 2019, my first prediction, I guess, um, we'll see less of a push um, as the bigger carriers, I think, are more fighting over urban and suburban areas rather than worrying about rural areas. Right. 
There was one other exciting development as well, which was Washington State eased some of the restrictions as well, which um, was on port authorities, Mm -hmm. I believe. And I believe Kitsap has an emergency authority to offer retail services if necessary um, in some parts of its network. So then what about for this year, predictions for this year, um, as far as uh, municipal broadband bills um, for or against? Well, I think we're, we're quite concerned. I mean, we, we've already seen um, uh, old fan favorite Representative Hoytanga in uh, Michigan pushing a bill that would um, try to make some broadband subsidies available, but not available to municipalities. So there's still some movement in Michigan from her to try to harm municipal networks. Uh, we're, we're fearful that we'll see some activity in Virginia. So I don't think it'll be zero. I'm quite confident to stay below five. I don't think that's a very challenging prediction. I'm going to say we're going to say three or less. I agree. I would say that's a safe number. I know. Well, I can't go higher. You know, I mean, I do have to stick with some common sense here, you know. So let me ask our our two new voices, starting with with Katie. Um, you know, I, we're talking about these preemption bills. You haven't really been involved in a, in a preemption fight yet. Um, you know, what's what's your sense when you've been working at this for more than six months now um, in terms of the, the threat uh, of the uh, of um, the big carriers trying to preempt cities? Is it is it something that you worry about? I worry about it, but I'm I guess I'm more um, expecting that the big carriers will try to maintain the status quo in a lot of areas too, instead of pushing for new um, preemption regulation um, or preemption bills. That they'll just try to keep it difficult or inconvenient for municipalities to build their own networks. Sure. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing. And I would essentially agree with Katie. Um, I think if nothing else, it's pretty bad press for the big incumbents to make a move like that, and they're going to avoid it when they can. I've always secretly felt like annoyed when we had to deal with those bills, but man, it was nice because it was the, our best press months were in those months that we were being attacked. Oh yeah, because it's us taking on the empire, right? Exactly, yeah. Related to that, we had a prediction from Hannah last year that we would see more state legislation to help co-ops expand in rural areas. I don't think that really happened, although we are seeing a discussion in Mississippi that maybe they should do that. And I would I would think that probably it will happen. I think that's correct. However, this year, I'm pretty confident that right now in Mississippi, there is a bill out that will change the law that will allow co-ops to offer broadband service. Because the way the law is written right now, this is the only state in the union that doesn't allow electric co-ops to offer broadband service. And we wrote about that recently. Which, again, I, I've, I've tweeted about this a fair amount, and there's nothing better than a, than a podcast host talking about tweets. Um, but this is a very easy challenge under Section 253 of the, um, of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. If the co-ops actually wanted to do this, they've had a route. It's a very easy case to say federal law does not allow you to stop us as private institutions from serving um, um, Internet access if we'd like to. Uh, they've just chosen not to do that. So um, to some extent, Katie, I think, you know, you've, you and I have talked about this before, but there is, I think... Um, a tendency of people in power to say, oh, I would love to make that that investment, but I just can't. I'm not allowed to. So you can't blame me if I don't do it. Yeah, I think um, especially with a lot of the rural electric cooperatives, um, especially the smaller ones in small towns, they can often, you know, they have a lot of potential for um, 
creating this great change and bringing broadband to their members, but they also are a source of entrenched local power in a place where there's not a lot of outlets for that. So I think they can be, um, like most utilities, really risk adverse, but also just kind of lazy. <laughs> I don't know if I that's too strong to say, but... Um, well, let's, let's talk about this briefly because you have real experience with this. And this is not in any way to minimize the importance of electric co-ops, the way that they have done a tremendous job historically of providing this difficult infrastructure in areas that are difficult to serve. But there are some trends among some co-ops, often in areas, I think, more like in the Appalachians, for instance, we've seen it a fair amount, where you uh, were working before you came here. But but tell us a little bit about what you saw with that, because I think there is a sense, and we're going to talk about our prediction from how many co-ops would be offering services this year. You know, there's a sense that a lot of them are getting on board, but some of them continue to resist very strongly, despite the fact their communities seem to be greatly harmed by not having the service. So a lot of the co-ops kind of, I don't know if I say a lot, I don't know if I can really um, more than one on it. More than <laughs> multiple, one may say, uh, co-ops kind of just want to keep doing what they've always been doing, which is provide electric service often at a reasonable cost to their members, which is great. But uh, a lot of them don't want to branch out, um, try broadband. Ideally, their members would be able to influence that uh, by talking to their um, representatives at the co-op, voting for new board members at the co-op. But um, in certain areas, um, especially, you know, you see it in the Appalachias, I think in the southeast in general, um, co-ops may not be as democratic as they're supposed to be, and they may have barriers in place for um, voting, and um, and sometimes they have really crazy uh, voting systems. So um, some co-ops make it really difficult for uh, folks to vote and for their vote to be counted. So um, I think we're going to see uh, probably some co-ops that give up <laughs> after extended member pressure to bring better broadband, but I think that's going to be a struggle, and I think um, just making the way is easy as possible for co-ops to deploy broadband and not have any concerns about its legality um, is a really good thing for legislators to consider. Right. And I and I should say as well that, that even though we strongly believe that those cases are easy, that these co-ops don't have a ton of extra resources to go hiring lawyers and get opinions and that sort of thing. We're going to stick on rural for a couple more minutes because we made a prediction that more than 100 of the electric co-ops would be offering fiber service by the end of the year. Um, we've got a little less than a little more than two weeks left. Katie, are we going to make it? No. <laughs> so I was wrong, but more importantly, Hannah was really wrong. So I could feel better about it. <laughs> Hannah predicted more than 150. Yeah. So I think uh, the real number is probably about um, about 68 electric cooperatives are currently providing service to at least one person. Um, I think there's probably about another 20 that have announced that they're going to begin providing service um, or have started construction of a fiber network, but haven't started servicing their members yet. What are you thinking for next year? When you, you got 12 more months, what, what number are you going to stick on? I might, I might go for 90. That oh, sounds okay. really sad. That's bold. Yeah, no, I'm going to say 150. I think we're going to see a continued resurgence. And I think 
we're going to see a bold construction you know period here and i think you know i think we'll have 150 who you know will be serving a member or be very close to that i think i might say like i mean there's a little bit of wiggle room but you can't yeah. blame a, a co-op in pennsylvania that is ready to put the shovel in the ground but can't in november so um that's where where i think i would stick and either one of you want to jump in lisa or jess i think that your number of 150 is way too high I think that those 20 projects that Katie mentioned are going to be done and will be serving people. And there may be a few more, but I think the process is um, too long and cumbersome for many more to have already started serving people. I think it's a good critique. I think there's many more than 20. We just don't know about them who are working their way down that pipeline. It's very possible. So, yeah, I'm going to be bold, and um, I'm no stranger to being wrong in these predictions. Boy, ain't that true. (laughs) Um, So the last piece is, and this is my favorite prediction from last year. Uh, Lisa, do you know which one I'm talking about? The network neutrality one? No, no. The city's one. No, my quote was that the federal government would tell rural America, would say oh, to rural yeah, America. Oh, yeah, yeah, that rural Americas could suck it. Yeah, and uh, I would I would stand by that. I think the federal government has told rural America in, in not as many words, you can suck it. And they've done that in so many things, not only broadband. Right, and so I think this is one of those things. A lot of people, when, when Donald Trump was becoming president, they had this hope that um, the many people who voted for him in rural areas did it because they had a sense that no one was looking out for them. They would take a big gamble. And um, Donald Trump and, and the people around him immediately forgot about him, uh, about rural America, um, to the extent that they ever really cared about him. And I think this is really embodied in a program that was passed this year that, that we critiqued um, that was going to give the USDA more money to get out to the most underserved areas. I think it was $700 million or so was appropriated. None of that money is available yet. Um, and from what I understand, they don't even know what the rules are going to be. Mick Mulvaney, the director of the the uh, Office of Management and Budget for the Trump administration basically said, yeah, we're not in a hurry to disperse this. You know, it's, you know, we're developing the rules, but USDA still has money. They haven't gotten out the door. So, you know, we don't really care that much about it. And I think that's the attitude of the federal government, frankly. There's a lot of good people in the federal government, um, you know, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, whether they're Trump Republicans or, you know, the sort of historic Republicans or whatever. They do care about the federal, the rural America. But as a whole, the federal government is not doing much to um, increase the quality of life or the economic opportunities in rural America. But aren't they trying to appropriate even more money for the USDA grant um, in addition to the money they have? That they haven't spent. No, I think Congress is trying to some you know make some more money available, but the it has to go through this whole process at USDA in order to be spent. But there's a bottleneck in the in the agencies, and the federal government is not doing much. I mean, the there's no real hearings on it. Frankly, the the way in which the Republican Party has tried to hold the executive branch accountable is incredibly frustrating. Um, I've said this before, and this is getting a little bit on a rant, but I think it's worth saying, are the founders of our country envisioned presidents like Donald Trump? They did not envision a Congress that would refuse to hold the president accountable for his actions or for the actions of the executive branch. The failure of our country right now is squarely in the legislative branch. And so that's where I think we should be frustrated. Um, but at any rate, um, rural America continues to be um, ignored. And uh, let's hope that that gets better. Jess, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to add that I do think people are just sort of shocked and appalled at the way the federal government has treated them, especially people in rural areas. 
And that is really bringing the focus back to, um, you know, what people can do with local movements. And I think broadband is going to be a big part of that. Yes. And so this this is one of the things that we're tackling. And as we move into more of our predictions for um, next year, um, I think it's worth noting that I, I thought that we'd see more organizing at this point. Um, I myself have failed um, in terms of uh, a hope that we had with the broadband and beers. I know that, that several of you have worked hard on getting that ready. We have not actually launched it or, or tried to make this more of a movement, but um, but we are seeing more organizing, um, just not as much as I'd, I'd hoped we'd seen at the local level. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in part because people are distracted by a lot of other issues. Um, these things do tend to be a little bit slow moving. Um, and people like me <laughs> need to actually make it easier for people to jump in, get informed, get inspired, and that sort of a thing. And so um, that's our job. And I think we're going to try and do better at it in 2019. Broadband and beers coming soon. Yes. Um, Lisa, you were wrong about AT&T and Time Warner. You said that they would just walk away. Yep, I was wrong. It's exciting, though. The Department of Justice has stood up and said, we're going to fight for this, that Judge Leon, who got so much wrong in that awful decision in, in allowing them to merge, the Department of Justice is fighting on. And it's actually, I think in some ways... Um, a continuing sign of the way in which the courts have been corrupted by the power of big corporations, because the Department of Justice is basically like, this is going to be awful for everyone if we allow these companies to merge. And the and the courts are kind of like, as I used to say, you've got to find a, a leprechaun riding on a unicorn before we'll accept your arguments because you haven't, you know, ridden that camel through the eye of the needle yet to uh, to demonstrate the, the case you have to make. I guess the desire for a mega conglomerate was just stronger than I expected it to be. Yeah, well, I mean, if I was AT&T, I would certainly be pushing on because the courts are basically saying, um, no, the Department of Justice hasn't proven that this will end the world. And even though it will probably inconvenience just about everyone and raise prices and, and really harm the overall market, well, the law doesn't say we can stop it for those reasons. So along those lines, um, you had predicted there would be more consolidation. Um, and you You're going to were... pick on me now. No, you were right. No, I was wrong. I predicted five. I guess maybe I didn't. Know. I don't remember that part. I just remember you had said there were more. Well, yeah, I mean, we're deeply disappointed to see Opelika is going to yeah. be privatizing. Um, understand why the state legislature refused to allow them to expand yeah, to they've, serve their neighbors. They've pretty much been a target since they started. Right. From what we can tell, they've certainly been successful in achieving what they want to. But they need to serve their neighbors. Their region needs better access, and the state will not let them serve outside of their their boundaries. And as we know with these networks, um, if you can expand, the economics looks a lot better. And frankly, we need these networks to be able to expand because their neighbors need better service. So in terms of predictions for um, privatization, what do we expect to happen? Do you think that we'll get more this year? I, I do think we'll have a few more. I don't think we'll have a lot more. You know, I think what we're seeing from HBC, um, the private company that was bought by Schurz in consolidation, is is a bit concerning. Um, it's still a company that that that, from what we can tell, really wants to meet its mission. But we're sensing that there's interference from the the larger entity that owns it now, and that's deeply concerning. I think again, our job will be to make that clear to people that if you sell your network and lose local control, that you're going to suffer. And that's something that we're seeing more of, uh, is that understanding. When I see people, the arguments that they're making for municipal broadband now, that argument's changing. 
I'm really curious to get a reaction from Jess and Katie on this who are a bit newer to it. Um, but, you know, when I see the arguments people are making for municipal broadband, it's not just, oh, our speeds are too slow. I see net neutrality, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I see, you know, concerns about uh, customer service, prices, and just this general idea of local control seems to come up more and more. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think that customer service is actually a big aspect that I've just noticed in a lot of stories in the past couple of months that people are really, really mad at the service they're getting from Comcast, not just prices and not just speeds, but that, you know, you're just getting that they don't care about you attitude and people don't want to live with that. Right. And I think we're going to see more of that, Jess. Just stick with us for a second, because I think we're going to have more people hitting their caps. You know, I, my family, we have a 4K TV. I've wanted one for so long. We finally, we finally got one this year. And now every Netflix stream is 25 megabits rather than five megabits a second. And that adds up. My family was already on the order of 500 to 600 um, gigabytes of data per month. I'm guessing we're going to be over 800, closing in on that Comcast cap. Um, may have to switch to a business service that doesn't have a cap. Um, but I think we're going to see more Americans coming up close to that cap. And then they're just going to be more frustrated at these carriers. I agree. I think, you know, a lot of people, it's not just, especially in um, maybe medium-sized towns and smaller towns that do have service from a telephone company and a cable company. I see a lot of um, stories mentioning just wanting to have options and wanting to have, you know, good local service. I think you guys are completely correct when it comes to customer service as being one of the issues that rankle people the most. Oh, as an example, here at ILSR, we had a situation that went on for 96 days regarding customer service, and that was when we were trying to get a phone cord for one of our phones from CenturyLink. Uh, specifically a power cord. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. a power cord. And if you'd like to read about it, you should read about it. It's on Muni Networks, and uh, we got caught up in a maze of customer service. We finally got some traction and some results when we took it to Twitter. Um, and even then... Like the third time. <laughs> yes. And even then, um, it was difficult to get any sort of help. And we had to go to the escalation team in order to get help then, too. So um, it's not just, you know, Jane and John Doe in their home without any help. It's it's us. It's us with business class service. I mean, we're we're sitting here with fiber. We we got fiber in our office, and we in part to pay for it, we got the voice service, which all penciled out to something that we could work out on. But the fiber service is great. We have no complaints. CenturyLink is doing a great job. Hundred megabit symmetrical. Having that extra upload is is everything we hoped it would be. It makes a difference. It's wonderful. But it's a reminder that it's not just about the technology because. We don't want just the technology. We're waiting for U.S. Internet to bring their fiber here, which, with any luck, will be next year. Um, and um, at that point, we'll be able to have both the fiber, but a good company that actually is responsive. You know, with a company that's local, whether it's municipally owned or privately owned, but if it's in the community... I could have gone there to get the cord, right? They know where that stuff is. It's not like I'm talking to somebody who's in South Carolina who's trying to get a warehouse in Colorado to ship out something and people in, in Washington State are getting in the way. I mean, you know, there were times when I felt like the CenturyLink employees were more frustrated than we were because of their inability to solve this issue. Yes, because they said that what we should do is <laughs> buy it off eBay. Right. They did at one point. I think maybe they suggested Amazon as well. 
Here's my prediction regarding net neutrality. Um, I think Disney's going to introduce its streaming service um, in next year. That's not a prediction. That's something that is everyone's expecting. Um, and and I think I think they'll be announcing deals with like Comcast and Spectrum, where if you sign up for that streaming service, maybe it'll be billed through Comcast. Maybe it'll be billed directly to Disney, but it won't count against your cap. Um, I mean, already Comcast did this thing where they called me up and they were like, hey, you know, for an extra like $7 or something, we'll let you, um, we'll give you this streaming stuff on cloud DVR. And I asked them, I was like, well, can I use Chromecast? And the guy said, yes, turned out to be a lie. Um, and so I can watch certain programs um, now um, on the using, a, the, using an internet connection, using my computer or phone or other devices. And those do not count against my cap. Um, and so I think we're going to see more of these sorts of games, and I think it's going to squeeze Netflix. Here's the key point. When that is announced, if it is, I think you see Netflix share price drop. And there you see the economic harm from not having these policies, from basically having AT&T and Comcast take over the market because there are no protections from the federal government. So that's a prediction that I, I think we'll see at the end of 2019. Okay. We'll check that when it happens. Hey, folks, there's a few days left before the end of the year, and um, that's a few more days in which you could send us a check. Um, we really appreciate and need your help to, to keep us going. We're a nonprofit 501c3, which means that it's tax deductible because we engage in education. Uh, we tend not to do direct lobbying. Um, and so, um, you know, as a nonprofit organization, we really depend on people to um, support us so that we can so that we can keep our doors open and and even you know it's one of those things where you might be thinking oh um, you know is this amount of money really going to be that helpful yes it is because when our funders see us getting more small donations um, you know our big funders like the the Ford Foundation for instance when they see that we're supported by by people who are using our resources uh, that helps them to know that we're a smart investment so please do make some contributions you can go to ilsr.org/donate that's i l sr.org slash donate and we really appreciate uh, any support you can give us um, you know additionally you can also really make sure all your friends are aware of our of our work our resources our podcasts things like that spread us around on social media please do what you can to help us win in 2019 thank you so much and now back to the predictions let's talk about digital equity jess what do you see happening so digital equity, I think it's going to continue to um, kind of grow as a movement as we, you know, more and more people acknowledge that broadband is a universal need for everyone, just, you know, like electricity, we, we need it. Jess, so let me ask you, how does this set it apart from maybe in previous years? I mean, I feel like we could have made that prediction in every way. What do you see specifically happening or what's, a, what's going to manifest from that? I think it's going to be broader support for municipal networks. So you think people will increasingly build municipal networks for digital equity reasons? Because historically, people have built them for jobs, for economic development reasons. Yeah, I, that's, that's what I think. I think it's just expanding the argument for them. Great. I think that I really hope that's what happens. I think that's a good prediction. For example, uh, Chris just did an interview with some folks out of Portland, Oregon, who are organizing for a municipal network. And one of the big drivers and um, kind of reasons they're doing it is to um, increase digital equity in the region and to um, make it easier for folks to access the internet. 
Right. Muni Broadband PDX is, a, I think, a really good follow on Twitter and in social media. They're very creative. They've done a video. Um, and so I, they're going to be a campaign to watch for sure. Let's talk about bigger cities. And I, I'm curious because Katie and Jess, you both started, I think, after the San Francisco effort clearly had declined. Um, this was something that I expected. I didn't I don't think we really talked about it much in the in the previous show, but I, I felt like there was insufficient grassroots organizing and, and um, activity. I felt that the the mayor, Supervisor Farrell, had his heart in the right place, but um, didn't have a, an effective campaign to really make it happen. Um, but what do you see happening in, in major cities? Are you seeing any trends um, in terms of what you predict to happen in, in a major city in the next year? Um, I would be surprised if we saw a whole lot of new movement there just because things move slowly in big cities. Um, I think it's a lot harder to get stuff off the ground without, like you said, a really good campaign behind it. Portland, Oregon is the only one that's really on my mind for that. Um, And they do have a lot of grassroots support there. I think we're going to see small things maybe and just small efforts to... um, fight the 5G order like in San Jose and um, maybe some attempts to try and um, address digital redlining or um, those kinds of equity issues. But I'm, I'm not expecting a giant municipal network anytime soon. I think we're going to be surprised. I think I think there's going to be a larger city than Chattanooga that announces. Um, it may not be a citywide effort. I think we're going to see m- some larger cities coming forward. And and I continue to hope that Seattle will do something. I think Seattle has really been harmed by this focus on trying to go citywide all at once. And I think Seattle could have long ago been a, a real model for a large city if they had chosen a more incremental strategy. In fact, by now they would have some service in low-income neighborhoods if they'd targeted them with a modest investment that could Seattle's budget could handle. Instead, we, we continue to see this fight over trying to do it all at once. And, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of that, um, but I I certainly admire the passion and the skill with which those folks have brought to um, bringing this issue to the forefront in Seattle. Is there anything in particular that you think would help kind of launch the big city effort? Um, perhaps, um, you know, a mayor that wants to become a president or <laughs> or governor or something like that. I mean, that's one of the things that's a bigger deal. But I think I think a number of these cities um, are recognizing that um, if they don't take action, um, we're going to see um, um, businesses and people being pulled out of the bigger cities because um, you know there's some pockets of bigger cities that are getting investment from private companies, but it's these mid-sized cities and um, smaller towns even that are getting this better access, maybe that are served by a co-op or something like that. And I think the market's going to notice that. Yeah, I keep seeing articles about the resurgence of the mid-sized American city, and um, I think you know that's for a variety of reasons: housing costs, um, just style of living, um, and just generally <laughs> the resurgence in cities, in, like arts, culture, food. Um, but I think municipal networks and connectivity could have a role to play in that um, kind of trend that we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, if if you gave me a hundred million dollars and said you can build anywhere in Minnesota, I would probably go to Rochester or Duluth because it would be lower cost to build there. Um, building in larger cities is difficult, even for for any entity, frankly. And so, I think the bigger cities are going to have to take action. Otherwise, they may be left behind. And, and they'll still have cable. I mean, they're going to have good download speeds. They're going to have you know the customer service. It's it's not going to be the end of the world. But I think they'll be frustrated, and it's not where they want to be. Lisa, one of the cities I just want to note, you've been working on a case study of Newark that will come out in 2019. And so some of the cities are moving forward quietly. Um, They are bringing 
better connectivity to lower income people. And businesses. And businesses, yes. And, you know, when you were talking about larger cities, um, I was going to, on some levels, agree, on some levels, disagree. I believe that there will be larger cities who are more inclined to offer municipal network connectivity to businesses, but I don't see it for residents yet. There's going to be more of them who are offering their INETs, um, expanding them out to businesses and testing the waters um, and maybe developing some finances to then go to residents. But I don't think they're quite there yet for residents. What do you think is going to happen on open access? We are going to see more communities that are investing in open access networks, you know, with places like Foresight, who are actively going out and working with communities. Right. Entry Point is, is doing a great job of this, too. Jeff Christensen's all over the place. I see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there will be more communities that are interested in that model. I'm not sure that the communities that are doing it are the right places for it, simply because the number of people who live there um, might not economically support an open access network. However, I'm not an expert on open access networks. Um, Maybe I will be someday. (laughs) But I do think that we will see more of them. I do think there's a pretty big future for open access infrastructure. um, And I expect to see more of that at different different size communities, um, including large cities. I think our, our budding open access expert, Katie, wanted to jump in. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if um, some of these places where maybe open access isn't the right choice, where if it turns into more of a quote unquote partnership, public private partnership type of model, um, where they really only find one provider (laughs) to operate in their open access network and it turns into something more like that. Well, hold on. Katie's trying to push the microphone away from her face. (laughs) When you say say it doesn't work out, I'm, I'm curious, what do you mean by that? What is your fear? I guess my fear is that if a place doesn't have, you know, the subscribers that are ready to subscribe to that and take services off of it, it won't attract enough providers mm-hmm. to really make it an actual like marketplace over the open access network. Um, so then it will turn into either a de facto, uh, you know, one provider network or it will um, the municipality will work out some type of um, agreement with a provider either, you know, before they even get to that point or after they've tried it for a while and it doesn't quite work out. Um, I don't think that's going to be necessarily like a significant number, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it happening in some places. We have seen some evidence of this. You know, Powell, Wyoming was going to be open access, but ended up having uh, one provider, a local co-op that it felt strongly with, I think um, may still be the only provider on it. But Rio Blanco um, in northwestern Colorado, they they have multiple providers and they only have a potential of, I think, like 3,500 subs or less. So um, I would say I think it's a good concern and people need to be aware of it. um, But I wouldn't um, take away from this any sense of doom or anything like that. In my dreams, I have this wonderful, wonderful concept that we'll see more of these open access networks and things will go back to the way it used to be when there were like all these smaller providers all over the place. Wouldn't that be great if we had like new entrants to the market? Woohoo! I would love that. This is, I mean, this is what Susan Crawford's calling from for in her new book, which will be out in early January. It's a book called Fiber. And she's very much calling for cities to be building open infrastructure that is available to launch all of those ISPs. I think it's a great vision. I'm incredibly hopeful for it. And we do get queries from people once in a while of people who actually want to start local ISPs. 
and they're asking us, how do I do it? So the interest is out there. So Lisa, you have a few more predictions. Um, well, just a couple more. And one of them is You're that, not getting a raise. <laughs> well, then I'm leaving. Um, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> this is a good moment for podcast listeners. We need you to chip in to make sure that we keep the hardest working member of staff employed here. <laughs> I believe we'll see more broadband co-ops. RS Fiber has been right. in place not, for a while. Not electric co-ops, not telephone co-ops, but a new co-op that right. just does broadband. That's right. Um, there's another one that we've seen lately that's taking form in Wisconsin called 3C. Uh, it's in near the community of Seneca, and it's just taking form right now. I predict we'll see more of those, and I would love to see that happen. I think we'll probably see at least two more this year. Okay. That would be wonderful. Also 5G. Uh, somebody had mentioned it earlier. I think it might have been Katie. Um, and Katie had also mentioned um, fighting 5G rules that the FCC had put in place. And I've noticed that there have been quite a few local communities that are creating these emergency local ordinances, either for aesthetic reasons or because they're concerned about what 5G is doing to their health. Next Century Cities has a, a great toolkit for communities that are trying to figure out how to navigate uh, this new world in which the FCC um, gave um, about $2 billion of potential revenue from cities to the big carriers. And the big carriers went to Wall Street and said, yeah, we're not changing our investment plans. It's pretty much what we expected. And, you know, we're not going to speed anything up. We're going as fast as we can anyway. So um, totally unnecessary um, limit of uh, what cities can charge for being in the right of way, uh, limiting cities' ability to negotiate effectively, um, and certainly limiting the ability to do zoning of where you might be putting 50-foot poles, um, which is um, you know, pretty large for a pole to be in a, a front yard of someone's house. So, um, yeah, these are these are pretty big issues. Yeah, and I see a lot more of those local ordinances. You know, there are places that have put a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of thought into historical districts. And so they're passing these ordinances. And I think we're going to see a lot of them, especially the first part of the year. Um, I don't know if the FCC is going to try to do anything about that, but I think it'll be interesting to watch. So I think my last prediction has to do with preemption more generally, which I, I just learned from a, a focus group. Um, most Americans don't know what the word means, um, <laughs> but it's where a higher level of government tells a local level of government or a lower level of government uh, that it cannot do certain things. Um, and I'm ex expecting to see more knowledge and awareness of preemption in the coming year because it's becoming a more and more a favored tool of very big corporations uh, to limit local authority. Because if you're trying to do something as a big corporation, it's easy to do it at the federal level. It's somewhat easier to do it at the, at the state level than at the local level. Um, as we saw from the referenda in 2018 here, um, if you spend a ton of money on a state referendum, you can win almost no matter what the issue is. Um, if it's a fair fight, then um, it's a little bit more mixed as to how the outcome will be. But at the local level, what do we see in Fort Collins? We saw an ungodly imbalance of money, almost what more than $900,000 versus $25,000 and $25,000 won. I mean, really, the people pushing the issue, they won. And so big money can win at the federal level. It can win at the state level, but it does not have nearly as much power at the local level. And so we're going to see big corporations pushing to preempt that local power more and more. And I think we're going to see it on a range of issues. And we're, I'm hoping we'll see more of these 
preemption, um, people who are getting preempted on these issues working together to raise awareness about it. And, you know, in like 2013, there was a sense like no one's ever going to know what net neutrality is. My friend's parents ask me about net neutrality now. So um, we, we educated people on net neutrality. We're going to educate them on preemption. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be harder to push these things through in a few years. Jess and Katie, thank you very much for joining us on your 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 first episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Happy to lend our expertise. Glad to be here. Hey, Community Broadband Bits family. I'm missing your dulcet tones in person, but I'm getting them through my earbuds here. And uh, I just wanted to say hey and make a couple predictions for this next year. I look back at my own predictions, and some of them really panned out and some of them really did not. I think the one that I'm most impressed with myself is is the kind of attitude about the big corporate mergers that um, the Trump administration kind of let through. And I think there has been a sea change in the media and in the way people are talking about these as really harmful for democracy and our economy. So I'm going to take credit for that one and just kind of ignore all the ones I got super wrong um, that I'm sure you'll litigate during the show. My prediction for this next year, and I'm interested to hear on the episode what you guys say about this. I predict that our good friend Ajit Pai, um, our wonderful Verizon lobbyist and FCC chair, is going to have some kind of media attention put on him uh, as one of these other kind of commissioners or people in the Trump administration that has kind of inappropriate ties to the uh, the lobbying and the industries that they've been a part of. And that that's going to be a big media story this year, which hopefully will clarify some of the the different things that he's been doing in the FCC. And on the state level, I'm super interested actually to see in the legislative session, I hope that there's going to be maybe three or four or five different legislatures kind of taking up this issue of how to get broadband access to their kind of most rural and um, sparse areas. So that's my prediction uh, for those things. If you have listened to other podcasts from the Community Broadband Bits podcast, and we know you have, then you probably remember Hannah Trossel's voice. Hannah Trossel used to work at ILSR as a research associate, and she's authored several reports for us. Well, she's back. She's been in Arizona doing graduate studies, and she's just come back to visit us. And while she's here, we grabbed her to give us her predictions for 2019 and beyond. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Lisa. Thanks. It's so good to be back. So we have all given our predictions. Um, We wanted to get yours for 2019 and beyond. Yes. I haven't listened to any of their predictions, so I don't know what they they said. They're fascinating. But um, my prediction for 2019 is that technically in 2019, about half the U.S. population will have access to fiber to the home. That's pretty ambitious. Are you sure you're going to go with that, Hannah? Yes, I'm very sure. And my next prediction is even going to be even more ambitious. And what is it? Drum roll, please. My prediction is that in the next five years, that technically everyone in the U.S. will have access to broadband, not via satellite. Everyone, are you sure you want to stick with that, Miss Pollyanna? Yes, I'm a I'm a very very optimistic person about the next 5 years. Wow, graduate school must have really done something to your brain. 
Maybe. I did just finish finals. <laughs> it maybe melted it a little bit. So tell us how it's going anyway. Uh, graduate studies are going very, very well. I am getting a master's in urban and environmental planning. Um, I just finished up a tribal community planning course, and I am currently working on a small little paper that I'm going to give to my Cherokee Nation council member to discuss like broadband and libraries within the Cherokee Nation because like the the areas with population, so around the outskirts of Tulsa and um, Tahlequah have good broadband access and then the other areas do not, but they have a lot of access to libraries. And so finding ways to use libraries to boost people's access to internet service is really important. Wow, that sounds really great. We are looking forward to when you come back again next year to give us more predictions and maybe this summer you'll be around and, you know, we can have you on the show again to talk about your paper or other things that are going on. Yes, I should be back in Minnesota during the summer. Great. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. See you around. Thanks to Nick Stumo-Langer, former communications manager, for sending in his contribution, and to Hannah Trossel, former research associate, for stopping by the office to record her predictions. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on original research from all our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, take a moment to donate. We'll be taking a break next week in observance of the New Year holiday, so our next podcast will be published on January 8, 2019. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 337 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast and for tuning in throughout all of 2018.